three, two, one, and we are recording. Oh. Those, those ivories are being tickled, something rotten. My name's Gordon Dallas, this is Whiskey Unscripted, and it's not the usual intro. Gordon Dundas usually plays the drums, but I can hear piano in the background. He has been, he said he was doing something all week, this is incredible. Gordon Dundas, you are a, you're a dark horse. Oh, well, I know, I mean, it's something that I've literally spent the last week learning, and I think I've done not too badly. I think that's above grade five, which is what I got to at school, so I'm pretty happy with that. Um, uh, so yeah, no, I'm very, very happy with that. How are you? Uh, well, I'm not buying it, Gordon. That's uh, I'm, I'm fine. No, I no. simply cannot buy that. <laughs> no, I, I need to fess up. I need to fess up. I cannot play the piano at all. Um, but we have some guests with us today who, well, Neil Ridley, of course, and a very, very fantastic piano player. So thank you for that, Neil. And Joel Harrison <laughs> as well. So Neil and Joel, hey. um, Hello. welcome to Whiskey Unscripted. Thank you, chaps. Thank you How are you? We're very well. Very, very well, well. Very well. Who was playing the piano? Was it you, Neil? It was me. Uh, ha a little bit ham-fistedly, I must confess. But uh, yes, uh, I, I, well, I've had lots of time, you see. This is the thing. I've had lots of time to uh, to pursue a secondary career. As, as uh, I'm not quite sure if I'm up to it yet, but I, I'm certainly giving it a go. We'll play for whiskey, I think, is my... Right. Uh, I mean, it sounded motto. like Liberace to me, so... Oh, I'm thinking cocktail bar. That's what I'm thinking. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 that takes, takes me back. It's like Jules Holt well, gone wrong, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Gordon, it, Gordon, we've never had co-hosts on Whiskey no. Unscripted, but the whole no. idea of an unscripted show is we do what we want every week. It changes. So this is going to be our co-hosts. Hey. You know, what I'd like to just say is from a Neil and Joe perspective, why don't you just talk to talk talk us through what your sort of role is in whiskey, what you've done over the last 10, 12 odd years you've been working in this wonderful industry. Thank you, Gordon. Yeah, well, Neil and I um, met, uh, unsurprisingly, given the introduction, on uh, as record executives. We were both working as, as A&R men in the music business and um, signing bands, making records, uh, both at rival labels. So Neil was at Warner Brothers and I was at, at Universal. And we found that we had this mutual love, uh, particularly of Scotch whisky. And um, so I was coming up to Scotland on holiday to go to the beautiful island of Isla. And somebody mentioned that to Neil and we got chatting at the back of a gig. And that's how we that's how we we first shared a dram, I think, Neil, wasn't it? I think, well, if, if I may interject, actually, I think this is probably the point where you realised that we were pretty terrible A&R men, wasn't it, really? Because um, <laughs> if, if I'm right in thinking, the band we were supposed to be seeing that evening was either Franz Ferdinand or the Kaiser Chiefs. And instead of going to see the band, we decided to hit the bar downstairs at the venue, sink a couple of whiskies, chat about Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible and a trip to Ireland that we were proposing. Missed the band completely. Uh, and that's kind of a reflection of how things worked out, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, they went on to massive success, of course, and, we, uh, <laughs> and here we are today. So. <laughs> Good evening, Japan. Good evening. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, like, like, like any good whiskey, Gordon, it's a relationship that's matured over over a decade now, and it's and and um, hopefully it's getting older and wiser and and uh, a little more fruity. Who knows? But uh, yeah, um, but a little more a little more mature is a good is a good way to look at it. And can I just interject there as well? You've written a book, and do you know your latest customer? 
No. It's me. I've just went and bought it. Uh, no. oh, look at that. How to ingratiate yourself with, with your co-hosts, Gordon. Uh, Distilled. Came out 2015. I, yes. I, I bought it. I'm it did. It, it did. So what was... Could you oh, give me a wee background on that book? Yeah. Well, we, we were asked to write a book um, by uh, a publisher called Mitchell Beasley, Octopus. They're, they're a, a massive, massive sort of publishing house, second biggest in the world. And, and they approached us uh, to, to, to do something. So we, we proposed Distilled, which is a sort of 101 introduction to the world of spirits. It came out in 2015 and it won the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Book, Drinks Book of the Year that year. And I think it's now in 14 languages um around the world which is quite something wow. uh you know yeah, every soft yeah. it turns up in taiwanese or something like that well i was gonna say uh gordon which language did it turn up in was it uh was it uh <laughs> taiwanese or mandarin or uh german it starts off saying you're gonna be our sherpa guides into and i thought what's this nepalese or something but uh, thankfully yeah, yeah. it's turned up in english you know it's, I'm, I'm, no, I'm quite excited <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it was a lot of fun doing that book, actually, wasn't it, Joel? Because I think yeah. one thing, we, we had a, a fascination with all, all spirits. I mean, it could be whiskey or gin or tequila or rum. And I think, you know, you, you find these moments with with every every drink. If you're in the right circumstance with the right people and you've got the right drink in your hand, you know, you're going to oh, fall in love with it. Absolutely. With maybe one or two exceptions. I, I, I've yet to find a baiji that I can honestly say I've ever fallen in love with. Um that 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 is a very tricky spirit. I'm, but I'm the same with grappa. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I've yeah. Never found a grappa that I like. Yeah, yeah, grappa can be grappa can be very very challenging. Grappa, grappa grappling with grappa. Uh, yeah. that's but, a new book. There we go. That's the next book, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But if you, so I've had a couple of, that, have, that have been quite nice. So speaking of speaking of wonderful dram spirits, what I really want to find out, gentlemen, is what is in your glass. Well, oh. today, you know, I have to say, all this time that we've had um, on our hands has been good. I've done a little bit of, I suppose you could say, whiskey admin um, or a bit of housekeeping. Uh, I've gone through the cabinet and, of course, you get these old dusties at the back there that you forget about and um, with maybe one or two drams left in them. I have pulled out a 1960s white horse blend. Um, 96. Who's, 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 someone rustling in the background there. Is that, not, is that you with it? No, it's the bottles, mate. That's, that's the perfect soundtrack to any. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sounded like you were r r rattling a skeleton or something. <laughs> um, um, yeah, not, 1960s old bottling of, of white horse blend and i have a, maybe i don't know maybe two drams left in it so i thought you know what tell you what let's see if this is as good as i remember it was now you could buy these things i mean for next to nothing a few years ago they'd often come up at these house clearance auctions and if yeah. you went on one of these sort of regional auction house online sites yeah. you'd find a case of this stuff and i, I already cared about it i already wanted it but they were really were good. And I think what's fascinating is they're like time capsules, these kind of whiskies. You know, they're not particularly old, but they were distilled a long time ago. And they really don't smell and taste anything like their modern equivalents. So no, I'm diving in with this now and it's waxy. It's, it's got cream soda there. It's I mean, it's great. It, it's, you know, I want to say it's probably mild, massively inconsistent compared to you know how blends are today but i kind of like that it's nice to celebrate yeah. that really so absolutely yeah. i mean i think i think that's a, that sounds like a great whiskey some of those old blends are fantastic and uh, that's really good what about you joe joe what have you got 
Well, but my first dram for our for oh, our chats because I think it's it's useful to have a couple of uh, things to compare and contrast. Um, uh, is an Armagnac, um, an Armagnac from 1979, which is my vintage, uh, distilled at the Casterard family distillery. And I think when we were writing distilled, we we travelled around the world, having spent an enormous amount of time in Scotland. We travelled around the world to find uh, to look at other styles of distillation, and the one that really I think became uh, took a special place in our hearts was Armagnac, the Gers region. Mm. And these guys, you know, they're, they're running small farms. They'll wheel in a still uh, that's mobile. Mm. They'll distill for two or three days, fill five or six barrels, and that's their annual kind of annual output. And it's it's amazing. Mm. You go to these little farms, and between November and March, and you'll find some old sort of farmish uh, French farmer in a flat cap, and he's got a still with. 55, 6, 57% ABV um, spirit coming out of it uh, mm-hmm. without any glass around it or anything like that. And he's got a cigarette in his mouth and it's wood fired. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking these mm-hmm. things are like mobile bombs, effectively. <laughs> They're absolutely incredible. But the quality mm-hmm. and the consistency of, of Armagnac, if you find the right house and the right vintage, uh, mm-hmm. is just a brilliant overview. Joel, really wow. do you remember yeah. that time when we were we were sitting down, uh, we had dinner in, a, in mm-hmm. one of these tiny tiny little places, it was like a barn, and uh, the guy was doing some overnight distilling, he'd hired this mobile distillery, uh, and he cooked our dinner in the still, didn't he? He, was, he made some soup, kept it warm in there, then he was cooking at other bits and pieces. It was, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life, that was. It, it was. You were that close to the spirit, and your dinner was being cooked in the still. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Can I just ask well, a question, Joel? Um, Armagnac and Cognac, I always get the two confused, and I know there's yeah. differences in the distillation process yeah. could you that's right so um, so so they, they they draw pretty on pretty similar grape varieties but in armagnac the distillation process is a single distillation whereas in cognac it's a double distillation so the charente still which is used in cognac that sort of looks like a um, I guess it looks like what we know as a gin still these days, sort of bulbous mm. side to one side and almost like a column mm-hmm. on the other. That's a double distillation, so higher ABV in the spirit, slightly less grape flavour, but with the single distillation of Armagnac, because it's much more rustic, it comes off at a much lower ABV in, in, the, in the mid to high 50s, and therefore you're left mm. with a huge amount of that grape flavour going into the French oak cask maturation. Well, I mean, I think what's significant here is we have allowed the grape to get on the green podcast here. Yes. Um, now that is fine. It's fine. It's totally unscripted. Um, but uh, I actually agree. Some Armagnacs and some Cognacs are wonderful as well. But uh, that's great. Uh, Gordon, what are you drinking? I've got two. Again, like Joel. And it's just the ones that are open because I'm so tight. I don't want to open a, a new one. Um, I finished uh, one last night. So I have got the Glengoyne Cast Strength Batch 7. Uh-huh. And I've also, under my table here, I've got a Smokehead's Sherry Bomb. Ooh, right. Nice. You're very fantastic. on brand today. Well done. I'm very on brand. No, they're both very good. They're, they're both the, open. They're both open. And uh, go. And there, there you've got a little bit of a debate because you've, got, you've obviously got a high-strength unpeated at 59 and you've got a peated sherry cask at 48. That's, uh, which one are you going for first? I think I'll go for the... I think I'll go for the, the PT one first. I know it's bit the less strength. It's uh, less. It's under. Nice. Under here. Under. Yeah. Nope, nope. <laughs> here we go. Oh yeah, beauty. Oh. Okay. So well, the best, the best sound ever. Um, well, enjoy which. Uh, enjoy that one. I have a lot forty rye now. 
Wow. I didn't know much about Lot 40 as a product, but I did have the joy of sitting next to a Mr. Dr. Don Livermore, who is quite an interesting character in terms of his evolution of flavor in whiskey. So this is a Canadian whiskey. Uh, and so it has an element of those sort of uh, notes that you would expect from a Canadian whiskey. Um, it's a legendary rye. It's got an earthiness, it's got floralness, it's got a bit of pepperiness, quite sweet, beautiful, beautiful whiskey. And it was really as a result sitting next to master blender, Dr. Don Livermore, who did an amazing class on on, on um, the uh, flavors that come in whiskey. So I'm enjoying that. So so there we are. That's what everybody's drinking. Mm. God, what's the ABD of that one? It's 43. Yeah, nice. 43. Yeah, I love a good rye. Good rye whiskey. Yeah. When it's really, done well, really, it's so special, isn't it? Yeah, and the funny thing, one of those idiosyncrasies about whiskey, of course, is you know, Canadian whiskey particularly, you've always heard of the, t the term rye and dry. All Canadian whiskies are called ryes, even if they're not actually rye whiskey. So one of those idiosyncrasies of global whiskey, which we're going to talk a bit about today, aren't we? We're going to talk a bit more about oh, whiskey. Right. From around the world. So, yeah. um, Gordon, I indeed, think... we've got to know our co-hosts, Neil and Joel, but before we begin, I think it's about time, we just did a little 20-second hand wash challenge. We are all in lockdown, <laughs> just to get the boys' hands clean before yeah. we start the um, the next part of the podcast. Are you chaps up for a bit of challenges? Absolutely. We are ready, yes. Right. Yeah. Okay, Joel, can I come to you first? Yes, of course. Joel, how many languages did you say distilled have been translated into? 14, I believe. 14 languages. Well, for my 20-second hand wash challenge, and I don't think you can hear the... the sinks already here. <laughs> you just have to get your uh, lovely water there. Could you, in 20 seconds, and there's no rush, just uh, come up with as many <laughs> words for cheers in as many different languages as you can think of in 20 oh, seconds? Yeah. Here we go. I I think I can. So cheers, slange. Yes. Um, uh, I think you've got to say uh, yeah. uh, prost. Prost. You've got to yeah. say skull. Skull. You've got Four. to say um, uh, you campai. Tintin. Uh, uh, Very good. Well done. Yes, I'll take that. That's twenty <sighs> seconds. Well well boys, can you add any more? Bottoms up, that's still in English. Bottoms, Bottoms up. up, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's no bad thing. Uh, Neil. Yes. You're up next. I'm up next, okay, I'm ready. I was on your uh, blog, uh, Cast Strength, and other writings that you've done, and I see you were suggesting about best gifts, um, best gin to give oh. us gifts, best spirits oh to give us gifts. Is that okay. right? That was probably quite a long time ago, but yes, I okay, can... Okay, so uh, it's the idea of gifting... Um, okay. Could I take away all the liquid and just ask you to give a gift that is whiskey or a spirit-related gift that's not whiskey or gin or any liquids? What gifts could you give someone that loves spirits in 20 seconds? Okay, uh, some whiskey stones to whiskey cool stones. down. Uh, some nice uh, set of Glencairns. Glencairns. A, uh, water, a water jug. A copy of the great, great book distilled. Oh, there's another one, The World of Whiskey, which is I hear is very good. Um, a cabinet to store your whiskies in. Twenty um, seconds. Yes. Not, not bad. Not bad. Gordon, how did they do? <laughs> very good. Very good. I think you need a bookshelf for all those books, though. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> I like uh, that's very good. That's I nice. shudder to think what's coming next. Constant hey, self-promotion. <laughs> yeah. Gordon Dundas, you're the yeah. Ian McLeod's international brand oh. ambassador. You've been all over the world, is that correct? Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I have. Just 20 seconds while you're washing your hands, could you name some of the best whiskey shows or whiskey festivals out there in the world, anywhere, you can go anywhere, 20 seconds. The Whiskey Show London, Whiskey Fest in New York and Chicago. You've got uh, Limburg. You've got um, Whiskey L in Shanghai. Whiskey Live is a whiskey shows all over the world. Um, but probably one of the best ones are the small ones where there's great people that you get to speak to. Full stop. Oh. oh, anything you'd like to add there, Neil or Joel? Um, whiskey shows, I, whiskey festival. One, one brilliant one that I actually I, I came back from not too long ago, actually, just before you, you couldn't travel. It's the Ushka Festival in uh, Helsinki. Oh, yes. It's been running ten yes. years now. Um, that's absolutely brilliant, I have to say. And uh, they're not even allowed to talk about it, which is the maddest thing with the alcohol laws there. But they get a couple of thousand people every year turning up to this. That, that's a really good one to go and visit. Yeah. The last one I was on, and a good question to ask Joel and Gordon, was the Viking Greece. That was the first one I had done, and that was quite a festival from Stockholm out into the archipelago and back three times. That is is an amazing whiskey festival. That is a whiskey festival that is basically you get 1,500 people on a ferry for three days, and as the exhibitor, you stay on the ferry for the three days. 1,500 people come on, you, you go sail overnight, come back, 1,500 people get off, another 1,500 people get on, you do it again, 1,500 people get off, another 1,500 people get on. 4,500 people, and they sell about 2 million euros worth of whiskey in about uh, three days. It's unbelievable. And Gordon, it's, oh Gordon, I can say this as a man who holds a Norwegian passport, but these aren't just people, these are Swedes. <laughs> and these are... These are people who have a, you know, they're a nationality that have a, have a certain capacity are, to be able to drink, to drink decent ice cream. As I, as I watch them running, as they, you know, they literally run towards the nearest stand that they want. They're Swedes in need. They are Swedes in need, and um, obviously, it's a great opportunity to get rare whiskies. But it's an incredible festival. Oh no! Uh, I, if oh. I can just say, at the nightclub in the boat at night, it's the first time I've ever looked across a, a dance floor and there's maybe about 300 middle-aged to elderly men dancing in T-shirts. It was like an episode of Twin Peaks, but they're, <laughs> they're enjoying themselves, so that's, that's, that's a good thing. Sorry, Gordon, I was going to say, your, your rye and dry um, uh, combination made me think of a, a, an alleged interview with Oliver Reed, where he'd been away for a while. And I think he was coming back and had an interview on Wogan or some chat show in the UK. And it disappeared off the radar for a couple of years. And somebody said to him, Oliver, where have you been? And his reply was, he said, well, I was in a pub and there was a beer map that said, drink Canada dry. So I thought, that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Just in the same vein, there was always that famous George Best story, of course, as well. Oh, yeah. On the Wogan show, which is just always worth just, just remembering, I think Wogan had asked George Best, a man who was very talented at football and did enjoy a drink, to be fair. Wogan asked him, so, so George, it's been alleged you've spent, you know, your fortune on, um, you know, drink, women, um, living the high life. And uh, uh, George's reply was, well, at least I didn't waste it. <laughs> but yeah, no, what, what we wanted to talk about, I think, today was yes. to get a little flavour of, I mean, I've travelled a lot. You guys are out there as well. 
Whiskey really now is, I mean, obviously Scotch whiskey, we represent Scotch whiskey. We, 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 we work in Scotch whiskey, but you know, the, 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 the depth of whiskey now is, is quite unbelievable globally. Um, and I was speaking to John Cashman yeah. about Irish whiskey. He was saying, um, you know, two or three distilleries, not only uh, a couple of years ago. And, and now there's an explosion in Irish. And it's true everywhere you go now, isn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I think what, what's brilliant is if you think about this 10 years ago and you think of the idea of world whiskey and you know i always use this analogy imagine you were a guy oh maybe 20 years ago guy walking into a, um, a, a a retailer in scotland he says hey i've got some japanese whiskey to sell you know are you interested in this i mean he would have been laughed out the shop probably kicked kicked out of scotland for that um mm. if you think about it now and you think of the sheer breadth of people who have you know i think mostly hand on heart would would happily tell you that they have learnt their skills and have a huge admiration for the way whiskey is made in Scotland. Uh, you know, they've been learning from the best. But what they're doing is they're, they're trying something different and it's working. You know, I mean, you only need to think about Tasmania as a great example of this. Um, a few years ago, I was sent, well, maybe six, seven years ago now, I was sent some unknown samples from a guy. I just said, oh, you know, I know you like whiskey and you've written a book about it. What do you think of these? And they blew my mind. I have to say, I, I rang him straight back. I was like, wow, wait, what are these? And there were young Tasmanian whiskies from a, a distillery called Overeem. And they were so good that you could put that in a lineup with, um, with any, you know, anything great. You know, it could be a 15-year-old Macallan. It could be, you know, some really big, heavyweight sort of traditional spay sherry bombs there. And people wouldn't necessarily see any flaws in these these whiskies at all it was amazing so i think that for me was one of those moments of going okay you know what there is something in this and then you get into uh taiwan you know and you look at what cavalan have done it's become it's no longer a thing it's no longer a kind of like oh interesting you know this is a really serious thing and and actually Mm. i hope this continues i mean i think if anything what it's done is it's just introduced people to to new ways to drink to new flavors, you know, there, there are fairly sketchy rules and regulations in Japan, which probably need tightening up. But, uh, you know, everybody's looking at whiskey now and going, wow, you know, OK, yeah. I can have all these different things in my cabinet. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I think that what's also interesting is, you know, we have these very tight rules about whiskey and everything has to be, you know, matured for three years at least, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have, a, you know, these bread of whiskies, there's, there's hundreds of distilleries in Germany, hundreds of distilleries in France, well, not hundreds, but, you know, lots and lots. And then across America as well, yeah. they make single malt in America. And, and so, so obviously, Joel, I'm just sort of interested to get an idea of the sort of, you know, how did, I mean, obviously we, we talk about taste of whiskey and that's ultimately what we should be looking for. But, you know, if, if you're buying a single malt, America and you're buying a single malt from Scotland there's quite a lot of things to just sort of weigh up is there a quite a lot of, what, what are the rules what are the what are the ways that, that relates to a single malt from Scotland you're, abs- you're absolutely right Gordon and I wrote a piece for the malt whiskey yearbook I think it was in the 2019 edition talking about um, what I describe as airwar rather than terroir um, because in Scotland, you can take, you know, I visited a distillery um, in Fife, where pretty much every element of their distillation, brewing and distillation, is foreign. So it was uh, uh, Italian stills from Frilly, and it was a Belgian mash filter and all this sort of stuff. And their malt comes from Russia, but yet they're making scotch. 
And why is it Scotch when it's Russian barley and uh, Dutch or it's Italian stills? Well, part, most of it is because of where it's rested and it's rested in Scotland and it's the, it's the mm. air, it's the atmosphere that makes it Scotch, really. Um, whereas you go over to Taiwan, to Taipei, and you go and visit Cavalan and they've got an entirely Scottish operation and they're bringing in Scottish barley and yet they're not making Scotch, mm. they're making Taiwanese whiskey. Why? Because the humidity and, and, and the heat um, and the, how that impacts and has an effect on, on the whiskey is really vital. I mean, uh, yeah. in the interview, I talked to somebody who, who was saying about maturation in Speyside being done in thin walled warehousing, whereas maturation on the islands of Scotland done in big, thick Dunwich warehousing because it's designed to protect it from the environment on the islands. Whereas mm, in Speyside, yeah. you want as much interaction as possible with those casks and yeah. the air. So I think that's got a big element to play. Uh, you know, the heat and the humidity uh, of the area that you're you're maturing your single malt. Yeah, oh, hugely. Mm. And it has a huge impact on colour. It's a huge impact on... I mean, I remember speaking to a friend of mine who, who works for Amrit, and he was telling me they lose 17%. That's an Indian single malt. They lose 17% of the angel share a year, which is... Scary. Uh, we're, yeah, yeah. Scotland, we're only one and a half, which is which yeah. is pretty. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. As well, for Neil and Joel, even for yourself, Gordon, just as you're talking about those international whiskies of Tasmania and Cavalan, is, is, is there something to be worried about? Well, no, I don't know, think so. It's a good question, that. And, and we've often written that it was a Scotsman that invented the television, but would you buy a Scottish television nowadays? Uh, no, you wouldn't. But what you've got, you know, but what you've got to do is 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 not drop the ball. And I think that's the great thing about Japanese distilling. I think it's a great thing about Taiwan, Taiwanese distilling, some of these American single malts and French single malts. Is all they're doing is they're throwing constantly throwing down the gauntlet to the Scotch producers. Mm. And thankfully, the Scotch producers are, are, are picking up the gauntlet mm. and actually really looking at how they can enhance their production facilities, how they can have better cast maturation. And it's for me only only produces yeah, yeah. better single malt. No, I mean I think one of Scotland's biggest biggest advantages is the diversity within within single malt in Scotland. That's always yeah. something it's down to the history, it's down to a lot of different things and it all comes together in, in what the current sort of offerings are for, you know, across the whole range of Scotch. But could you say that maybe Scotch has got that traditional heritage I wouldn't say that's a problem of perception, but does it look a little bit old compared to all those fancy ones of, you know, the ones that Neil and Joel are talking about experimenting abroad? It's an interesting one, this, because I think actually there are so many desirable aspects. of If you look at tradition and, and, the, and the past, in a way, the thing is, is what you want is to be, in a way, defined by your past, defined by your heritage, but not bound by it. And I think where this works brilliantly in Scotch is where there are practices that just work, that you wouldn't want to change. I mean, for a very good example is when I was doing this talk uh, at a, uh, uh, this event in Helsinki, I looked at old versus new. So I looked at sort of a bunch of whiskies from the, the sort of 60s and 70s. And I, put, you know, I asked people to put my hand up. I said, do you think these are going to taste better than their modern counterparts? And almost everybody in the room put their hands up and says yes, because they, people are automatically programmed to think that older is better. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side in, in some respects. When you go back and then, but then you try them against modern equivalents, what we're, what we're actually looking at here is some, start, some pretty ropey stuff was actually produced then because there was a lack of consistency. I think there's a fine balancing act here of 
bring with you the bits that are relevant and dispense the bits that are no longer relevant. And I think we've learned yeah. so much. I mean, you guys, Tamdu, are doing some great stuff with sherry casks. You know, you're, you're not backwards about coming forwards with this. You use great quality casks. It's evident in a liquid, right? Right straight away. And that's a very simple process. I think you're getting consistency there. At the same time, there are people doing really unusual bits and pieces. They're trying new techniques uh, and they're working. What you don't want to do is engineer the personality out of something with, with consistency. And I think that in a way, some of the bigger Scotch producers are probably in danger of doing that for consistency for consistency's sake. But there is a fine balancing act of artisanalness and, and craft and then this idea of making a bland faceless whiskey there are a bunch of really really well-made highly um in a way you could say mass-produced whiskies which i would say are still pretty craft driven and there are a bunch of really small ones which taste god awful where the producers exhibit no craft whatsoever so you know it, 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 there's no kind of defining rule there but it's that thing yeah. of not being bound by it really is it i think yeah and there was that famous story in the states of a lot of um a lot of craft bourbons actually being produced by a big uh, factory in Indiana. Oh, yeah, sure. Putting them in a bottle. So off-the-shelf bourbons being put in a bottle. So that's why I think those rules of Scotch are really, really important. So um, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, what I'm, I'm, I'm also really interested in is, is if you look at how these, how these industries have evolved, what started off Tasmania whiskey, what started off, you know, whiskey globally, uh, and and Gordon, you may you may be able to give us an insight into that. Well, yes. Every week we do a year that changed whiskey, but this this week, Gordon, I feel with a musician on board, we could maybe have yes. a little tickle of the ivories <laughs> to get the the feature started. Would that be possible? Yes. I, I'm, well, I'm good after I'm good after one dram, two. I'm not so bad. <laughs> three. I rapidly travel downhill. I'm afraid this. I'm on my second. I'm actually drinking a Tamdu now. I'm drinking the. Oh. Uh, uh, it's the Dying Whiskey one, the single cast from Germany, which I, I managed to pick up a few weeks ago, uh, which is nice. magnificent. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on two. I'm great, just at my threshold. Great minds think alike because I'm on to the Tambu 12. Oh, very nice. I'm on the Well done. Very nice. Very Still nice. Neil, any... This. Yes. Oh. I've got this is the year... The change with whiskey. The year of that song. Very this, good. With Neil Ridley introducing right. the feature. It's the year that changed whiskey. And the year that we're choosing is the year 1918. Thank you, okay. Neil Ridley. Wow. That's brilliant. Wow. Here we go. Well done, sir. I'm sure you guys can pitch in, but the year that changed whiskey was when a, a young 24-year-old man got off the plane in Glasgow in the later part of 1918, the year of the Great War finishing. His name was Masataka Takatsuru. He was born in Hiroshima, 1894, and he arrived here really to learn the secrets of the Scotch whiskey distilling industry. Uh, he enrolled at Glasgow University, where my daughter is right now. He was doing organic chemistry, and over the next two years, he would learn 
his trades in some of uh, Scotland's distilleries. That would take him, that was. So he apprenticed in the Longmorn. They had him for a week there up in Strathspey. And what's lovely, he went to Central Station. And I, and I don't know how many people from Hiroshima would be knocking around Central Station in early April 1919, but he was. And he got on a train up to Strathspey, seven days at Longmorn to learn some of the, the, the craft there. And... A year later, I should say, later on in that year, he moved into digs, into accommodation in Kirkintilloch, just up for, for where I'm sitting in Mulgay. And Kirkintilloch, very famously, was a dry town to the late 1960s. But anyway, so Matasata Takitsuru took out a room in Kirkintilloch and there he fell in love with the second sister, Rita, Rita Cowan. And you may not know, but Rita Cowan's fiancé had been killed in the First World War. They married in 1920. Very small wedding, not approved of by anyone in the local area. Um, he was a very handsome man, black belt in jiu-jitsu. He seemingly loved hunting, loved fishing. They got married, moved down to Campbelltown. And then he began his last apprenticeship at Hazelburn before moving back to Japan. And he went back to the company that sent him, the sake company. They weren't really totally enamoured by his thoughts and distilling. They wanted it quick. So he left there, ended up working for another very famous drinks company, the Shinkjiro Tori of... Um, yeah, right. Yam Yam yeah. You'll know that, Gordon. Yamakaze, yeah. near Kyoto. So that's where he works. And again, you might be able to tell me more, but it didn't quite work out. Matatsaka Takatsuru wanted to do his own whiskey his own way. And yeah, what no, it was, was lovely about this story, Gordon, is it was Rita who was tutoring kids of a very successful businessman that put him in touch with a very rich man and they set up the Nika distillery in Hokkaido. So you can put some yeah. meat in the bones, but maybe it didn't change Scotch whiskey, but that really <laughs> led to the foundation of the Japanese whiskey industry. Oh, the man absolutely. who arrived in Glasgow in 1918. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've covered it very well. I mean, he, he, you know, he was a... He was a you know, he was he, he was a man of of distinct sort of vision, and he really wanted to produce a particular style of whiskey. And the whiskey that he originally produced in Japan with with Shinjo Tori and, and the what, what became Suntory was actually a complete flop and didn't work very well. And until they actually appreciated the need to create a whiskey that was more aligned with the Japanese palate, and 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 from that point onwards, you could maybe now understand how Japanese whiskey has got to where it's got to. Um, so yeah, no, a really great story, and it, I think it's the first big sort of, you know, 1923 was the first distillery, so they're only uh, three years away from a hundred years of making whiskey. So yeah, you know, it's not it's not a new world whiskey, as I think. What do you think, guys? I think it's amazing, is because actually when you talk to people now about Japanese whiskey, and I guess the heat has really been on it, certainly with what the last probably five or six years. And, you know, you look at the sort of scarcity now and how difficult it is to get and these kind of incredible rising auction prices. And it's attracted a, a kind of another subset of people into whiskey. And for them, this is brand new. And like, wow, Japanese whiskey's come out of nowhere. And then you remind them that this is a hundred year overnight success story. <laughs> uh, it, for me, that goes to show that you can't just magic something out of thin air and expect it to be absolutely outstanding. I mean, you guys are absolutely right. I think when this first came out, Japanese whiskey was not a success. You know, it was widely panned. Um, the flavor profile they were going for didn't suit the Japanese palate. And it really took 
a few gambles and a, you know certainly a massive investment to get mm. this right over time and actually i think we often sort of overlook the importance of of time in anything like this you know there are we, we live in a, a sort of very uh, a very fast paced uh, society now where we expect results very quickly our attention spans are seemingly becoming shorter whiskey is almost a sort of great conundrum isn't it really it's the sort of almost antithesis to this that yeah yeah to make a great whiskey it takes time but to build a credible brand like this takes decades you know and i think that's that's you can't take anything away from the guys there doing that i think what's fascinating now the converse of this is that you're now seeing lots of smaller japanese whiskey brands Mm. cropping up out of nowhere some genuine ones who are distilling from scratch and they're not releasing whiskey until it's three four years old but then what you're getting alongside that is this whole another dark murky world of See, you know, like, oh, we've got an 18 year old whisk, Japanese whiskey with an unpronounceable name here. W- where's this come from? You certainly haven't made this. Um, mm, and I think yeah. what's going to happen in the next few years is you're going to have a real, excuse the pun, a sort of a distillation, if you like, of what is genuinely Japanese and what is probably from somewhere else. And that has to happen because otherwise the whole of the business is going to start to become under more intense scrutiny. And oh, no. It's, it's going to fall apart. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's always been that, you know, story of, of Scotch whiskey going to Japan and being bottled in Japan and called Japanese whiskey. And, and um, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's something which um, I think needs to be done for the sake of the Japanese industry. And I know I know that sort of bigger players are keen to get a get a get a sort of um, a set of rules in place that everybody needs to follow, which I think would benefit. But I mean, what I love about and this is a very personal thing. It's one of my favourite whiskies. But what I love about what they managed to do, and I don't think there's a Scotch brand that's managed to do this. We still have in in, in Scotland and in in in, 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 in the Scotch whisky industry a defined sort of blends, single malt, and sometimes for some people, never the twain shall meet. Now you're drinking a white horse, which is a beautiful blend. But you know, if you look at uh, Hibiki, which is a whisky from Japan, beautiful, beautiful blend. It's talked about like a single. Yeah, it's it, a lot of people go. That is a, like. I mean, it's a oh, it's a blend. They don't they don't apply the same sort no. of views on blends when they talk about Hibiki. Uh, Joe, what do you think? Would you agree with that? I mean, I just think it, it, it's something that's sort of transcended whiskey Hibiki almost, and it's just a great whiskey. It's it's phenomenal, and I think one of the things that the Japanese got right at the start was, or at the start, the start of this new wave, if you like, of Japanese whiskey was the packaging, and the way the bottle that comes in is beautiful. The quality of the liquid is excellent. Um, you know, they they were hamstrung by the fact that they couldn't keep up the the supply with the yeah. demand because I think it was the there was a was it a twelve year old that was in plum wine casks? Yeah. You know, absolutely phenomenal product. And I think, Gordon, it's it's this classic, both Gordons, it's this classic thing where if you get flavour right, it doesn't matter if it's a blend or a single malt. It really doesn't. If you get no, something quality in the glass, doesn't matter if it's coming together of grain and, and malt or just malts or one individual malt style. If it's tasty, it's great. Very keen to explore, uh, you know, you guys have, where's the most interesting market that you've been to, each of you? Um, in terms oh, of sort question, of experiences no. in the market. Do you know what? Do you know? I think this is, 
yeah, fascinating this, isn't it? Because we, we, we travel a lot together, but we travel obviously independently when we've been working abroad and um, on different whiskey events. One of the great experiences for me was actually, and you're involved in this, in uh, Gordon Dundas, is oh. that time in Taipei, when, oh, when yeah. you were living there actually, many, many, many years ago. I'd come over for an event um, that, that was happening. And we both met at the Backyard Bar, didn't we? Uh, Larry, Larry yeah. Core, I think it's called, isn't it? And we sat yeah. there with this extraordinary collection, must be seven, 800 of some of the world's finest, rarest single malts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's like a child in a candy shop. This when you go and you look at all these amazing things. Uh, you know, some were very reasonably priced, some are astronomically expensive, as you would expect. But we sat there drinking... I have a feeling it was Ockentoshan 12 highballs the whole night. Yes, it was. You are correct. Um, and they were, and they the were lovely. <laughs> yeah. The, quali the quality of those drinks and the serve and the way these drinks were presented to you, the, 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 you know, the quality of the ice, the care and attention. And, you know, yeah. if you went to another bar somewhere and you said to someone, you know, a connoisseur or a professional person in whiskey, Right, tonight, you've got the choice of all this amazing stuff, but you can only drink Ockentosh and 12. People will think you're out of your mind. But that night, it was so special, wasn't it? Exactly. To have that whiskey in that situ with those serves. It, it, for me, that redefined what whiskey is because mm. you can take something which, you know, I think is a very, a very good quality whiskey. You know, there are probably far better and probably a few worse whiskies out there. But when you put it into the context of how we were drinking it with the right people, with the right place at the right time, that really redefines how I consume whiskey. And uh, I mean, it's an amazing market for that, actually. I think it's a very open-minded yeah. market, isn't it? I mean, but that, and, and just leading on to that, we'll come to you in a second, Joe. Just leading on to that, what I, I get a lot of people say to me, oh, hey, I drank the... Well, let's take an example. I drank Glengoyne ten year old fifteen years ago and it and it's and it wow oh, fantastic and it, it's definitely different now. And you sort of sit and you go, might be a hint different, but the key point is it's not actually that different. What you are yeah. remembering back then is you're remembering firstly a very good Glengoyne ten year old, of course, but you're remembering the occasion, you're remembering who you're with, you're remembering where you are, and it's all amplifying and mixing together, which means that you, are, you, you had a wonderful experience. It's exactly what you just explained. And so, yes, totally. We're recording one now. I mean, this is the thing. We're recording. Exactly. We're, we're leaving a moment in time here. I, I've now opened my third Tamdu. I'm a, or my second Tamdu. Oh. <laughs> Joel, <laughs> um, I, Joel, what about you? Where were you? Where's your sort of standout? Oh, that was my sort of best sort of international whiskey experience, as it were. It's a it's a fascinating question because we have drunk whiskey in uh, in pretty much all corners of the world. The, mm -hmm. You know, I always think there's something incredible about having a scotch in Mexico City or, or or being somewhere kind of completely the other end of the world from where from where scotch is made and consumed. Um, and uh, India is a place for me that always lives long in the memory mm -hmm. just because I've been there a few times and. I think it's, you know, sitting in some of these sort of colonial style bars and some of the big old hotels and yeah. drinking blended scotch as, the, as a sundowner in this sort of boiling, humid heat, um, uh, you know, listening to sounds that, that are completely unusual and smells that are completely unusual to you. But I always have to say, coming home, probably to Scotland itself, to the 
piers of some of the coastal distilleries on Isla, you know, standing outside Kalila, nice. standing yeah. outside Lagavulin, standing outside Lafroigue, jumping into the sea at Ardbeg Distillery. You know, those whiskies find context when they're there. And, and, and now whenever I know, say, a glass of Lagavulin 16, it takes me right back to being on the pier at Lagavulin Distillery. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's one of those things where you just can't hide from that. You can't hide from the tangibility of that and the, and the emotion that it evokes in you. Gordon, what about you? Gordon, that's the music, that's the, the episode is up. I'll answer that question next week. Look on it as our first cliffhanger. This is Gordon Dallas in the post-production office of Whiskey Unscripted, or as I like to call it, the hut at the bottom of my garden. And we have taken the editorial decision to rather than bring you one long, long podcast episode, we would divide it into two smaller parts. So please join us next week for episode five, part two. Enjoy your whiskey. Thank you for joining Whiskey Unscripted, brought to you by IMD.